Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. As soon as a person walks into the prisons, all of a sudden they don't get NDIS. They don't get Medicare. They don't get pharmaceutical benefits. So that's health discrimination at its best. So we see many of our families in the prisons and they're not entitled to get any of that. So there's some of the things that we're looking at. I mean, there's a lot of positive things as well in the sense of the over in New South Wales with the justice reinvestments and basically keeping people out of prison in the first place. Justice, human rights and affording First Nations people living with a disability a dignified life in the community. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Indigenous Australians, particularly those living with a disability, remain overrepresented within the criminal justice system. Statistics show Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability are 14 times more likely to be imprisoned than other Australians, and once in the system, a predictable cycle of reoffending and imprisonment is far more likely to occur. According to experts, contributing to these trends is a lack of culturally appropriate support services, early intervention programs and an over-policing of Indigenous youth. Earlier this month, the Disability Royal Commission heard shocking allegations that an Indigenous woman with an intellectual disability was regularly kept in isolation for 23 hours a day at a forensic hospital where she lived after exiting prison. The incident has led advocacy groups to call for the Commission to hold a dedicated hearing into the barriers faced by First Nations people who wish to access support services within the criminal justice system. These concerns were central to an online forum I had the privilege of facilitating titled Fighting for the Rights of First Nations People Living with Disabilities in the Justice System, hosted by the National Justice Project. Kicking off the conversation was Megan Cracker, a Menang Noongar woman with a long history of working with the most marginalised of First Nations peoples. Prior to joining the National Justice Project, Megan worked with the No More Legal Centre, contributing to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. She also has previous experience with the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. And as you're about to hear, It's this passion for tackling social justice issues in partnership with community that largely drove her career in the sector. I kind of fell into it. So I come from a big family. There's 13 brothers and sisters in my family, really, really strong family from Mount Barker. Basically, when I left Mount Barker, I was working around in different government organisations and, you know, it was really quite good. But then it got to the point where I thought... I think I need to do something more and that's when I started working with No More Legal Service and working with No More Legal Service very much went across to 27 prisoners, uh, prisons, sorry, all across the nation in New South Wales, Queensland, also down in Tasmania and once in Western Australia and speaking to people about the child sexual abuse and some of the hurt, pain, suffering that they've faced and trying to help validate that trauma and connecting them up with counsellors and also the commission so they could tell their personal story and they be part of what it is today in terms of the recommendations that have now come out of the Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse. From there, I went into a post-pension service and that was really, really tough work and tough in the sense that you love your families, you see the helplessness, you see the despair, you see the poverty firsthand and you see that there's a lack of support for our families, particularly the First Nations people around the boat, you know, who are most marginalised and vulnerable. And you want to do, do, to do something different, something more, and basically to correct the narrative. And then, of course, working with the National Justice Project, um, incredible bunch of people that work there. George Newhouse, absolutely sensational. So I work with those guys three days a week and two days with the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. What keeps me in this role is the love for the people, the fact that you see their helplessness, you see the despair, and you know that there's something that you can do and It's not just about doing something, it's about changing the narrative because the narrative is completely wrong at this point. I see a lot of our people who, in the dungeons at the prison, in detention units, looking for that help, looking for that support. 
um, as was the case in the situation today, a young man who was placed in the detention unit at one of the prisons that I went to. And it's just going down, talking to him, sitting, yarning, validating some of the issues that he does have and then working through the arc of the issues. So it's, it's basically the love of the community. What drives me is my mum and dad rest in peace. We lost dad four years ago, mum, when I was 18 years old. So just keeping it real, keeping it about community and just knowing what I stand for and our community values and who I am as a woman and standing up for our most vulnerable and marginalised. It's really clear from the work that you do that you won't take on a role unless you can make a difference. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that you have with the National Justice Project and in taking the role on what you are hoping to achieve, what you are hoping to achieve. Equality. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to work with the National Justice, because they are on the front line. They do work in partnership with our community. They do elevate the issues at unprecedented levels throughout the country. And they take on issues in partnerships with the families and the voices of our people who are most marginalised and vulnerable are heard there at the, at the front coalface, in the sense, and in the media. So it's one where you can force systemic change to a group who is highly marginalised and highly vulnerable, 40% of our people across this nation, in terms of Aboriginal and First Nations, fall below the poverty line. Over in Western Australia, where I come from, 60%. So it's really, really tough, the challenges that you see with our people in terms of homelessness, um, child removals, suicides, you name it, we see it, domestic violence. The work of the National Justice Project very much elevates many of those issues and it provides that legal advice and we do it together with the families, which is incredible. You talk about the fact that part of what you're wanting to do is to address some of the systemic failures. Can you talk a little bit about, for people who really don't understand the world that you're working in, what some of those systemic failures are? So I'll allude to a couple of examples. So, for example, in West, across this nation, in a three-year period, there were 10,000 people that took their lives to suicide, 10,000 people, black, white and brown, that is absolutely disgusting, it's draconian. And what I'm seeing is that suicide awareness is not on par with suicide prevention. So in terms of the supports, the psychosocial supports, the assertive outreach into the homes of our communities, into our homes of the families. So we elevate those issues in partnership with the families and say, this is what's needed going forward to save lives. With the prisons, for example, as soon as a person walks into the prisons, all of a sudden they don't get NDIS, they don't get Medicare, they don't get pharmaceutical benefits. So that's health discrimination at its best. So we see many of our families in the prisons and they're not entitled to get any of that. So there's some of the things that we're looking at. I mean, there's a lot of positive things as well in the sense of the over in New South Wales with the justice reinvestments over in America. They very much have defund the police, but with the justice reinvestments over in New South Wales, it's about spending money in our community and, and basically keeping people out of prison in the first place. And that's very much consistent with the way it was back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, it was very much about providing that support to our families. I remember my auntie Beryl, who worked as a health worker down in a place called Narogen. She went out to the community. She went out to the homes. If someone needed a health check, she was there. She was there to provide that service. Today, and I'll just take into account Department of Child Protection and its counterparts all across this nation, a $6 billion corporation, yet 17% is spent on family supports. So there's been a shift from the 80s to where we are today, and that very much is consistent with what we've seen in terms of the Bringing Them Home report in 1997. 2,000 children were in care. The Stolen Generation, the Apology by Mr Rudd, 8,000 children in care. And today... It's gone up to 23,000 kids in care. And by 2030, we're expecting there will be 50,000 black kids in care. That is just ridiculous. And what we need to do, and this is what I love about the work of the National Justice Project, is that our, that our families aren't being spoken for. They're using their voices, their experiences to say what the issues are. So that's the systemic repairs, the systemic challenges that it's good being, you know, being part of because... You're saving lives, you're improving life, life circumstances, but you're making it better for the generations coming behind you. 
You talked about the justice reinvestment and the defund the police. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the sorts of reforms that you think are needed. And obviously they're the big picture reforms, yeah, quite big structural reforms. But you've also mentioned the fact that people coming into prisons don't get on the NDIS. So there's sort of other things that could be done. Just from your perspective, if we made you Prime Minister, what sorts of reforms would you like to see across the board that, from your experience, would really make a difference to people on the ground? Okay. So obviously more support into the homes. There would need to be that 24-7 assertive outreach into the homes of the people. There needs to be that intense psychosocial support. So when I say intensive psychosocial support, it's treating mobs that you come into contact, like they're your brother, they're your sister, they're your uncle, they're your child. What are the issues that's going to bring them into a positive place again? What we have across this nation is 12,000 people that are in prison, 12,000 of our brothers and sisters that are in prison today. There's a program over in Western Australia. It's a very modest program. It's really quite um, humbling. That is the Nalamea program. So what happened is that since 2016, 370 people have walked out of prisons. They've had training for two weeks and they've received eight different qualifications and those are all working now. And that means that 10 people who had no hope, they are now buying their own homes. So it's radical transformation which is needed. And it can be done because it is being done here right in Western Australia. And I know there's some other programs that's happening across this nation, but if we're looking at 12,000 of our brothers and sisters in prison across this nation right now, if you're having a look at 370 since um, over the last three years, and it's made a big difference not only with them, with their families, with their children, but also our community, that's the way to go, radical transformation. In some ways, the program you mentioned where people get skilled and so everyone's employed, it's radical, but it's also in some ways a very simple solution. You know, it's very practical. No, it's absolutely beautiful. And and the beautiful thing about this program is it doesn't beat anyone out. It doesn't do that. A person can come into contact with this program and basically have issues with Department of Child Protection or policing issues or homelessness. There's a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. So that person, in fact, finishes the two weeks. They've done the training, then they get the job. That's how you transform lives, transform lives, and it's beautiful like that. Hmm. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the Disability Royal Commission and what your hopes are about what it might achieve. Do these larger pieces of investigative work really lead to change? Are you confident about that? You know, what are the positives there? Well, I did work in the, the Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse. That was an incredible commission. What I loved about that is that it gave voices to the people. So they had the private sessions, and through the private sessions, people were able to speak to one of the commissioners who were absolutely incredible because there were six in an hour-long session and then be provided with the counselling after that. But on top of that, the Royal Commission did go into all of the prisons across the nation they gave our people a voice to be heard. And what we've seen after that, even though the Royal Commission has finished, we've seen things change. For example, the National Redress Scheme and a lot of our families over in Western Australia, they have been able to access the National Redress Scheme because of the conduct and the way that the Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse, the way that it was conducted, it gave the voices to our people who ordinarily wouldn't be heard. So in terms of disability commission, I have hope, but it can't be tokenistic because too often what we see is that commissions, royal commissions, one after the next, it's not making no difference whatsoever to our people and especially a lot of the people that I come into contact with every single day, the most marginalised and vulnerable, uh, where suicide is an issue, where child removal is an issue, where sometimes prison is an issue. So it's great to have these Royal Commissions. It's what happens after that. But I am impressed with how the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses in the Child Sexual Abuse did give our families voice. And one of the things that I saw is going across the nation and speaking to people about their child sexual abuse and all the pain and the suffering and the hurt that they've endured since certain events happened. And going back to those same ones after the validation and the counselling support and the love, the support and the respect, they're in a better place than what they were 
had the Royal Commission not occur. Mm. It's interesting listening to you speak and obviously one thing that um, you've really highlighted in your observations is the importance of giving voice to people who are have been marginalised and not heard. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. I think that's something really important for us to reflect on as advocates where we often speak for other people. And I guess what you're really highlighting is actually the need to provide space for people to tell their own stories and the power of that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what you've observed in that space. Well, it's about validation because a lot of our mob, they're smart mob. They can speak for themselves, but too often their voices have been suppressed. So when you do it together, so, for example, with the National Justice Project and the Dungay family, they tackle it together. The strength, the, the narrative can change because it's talking about their hurts. It's talking about their trauma. It's also talking about, hang on, we have been wronged, therefore we're going to fight for justice. But you may have seen with the little girl, rest in peace, the 11-year-old that took her life in Western Australia just over four weeks to five weeks ago. We were heavily involved in that family. And mum, she wanted to speak to the media because she wanted to make a difference, not only for Aboriginal kids, but all kids. And as a result, the bail laws over in Western Australia are being challenged. But she spoke out, it validated her trauma, but she wanted to make a difference. That was more powerful than me speaking on, on her behalf. We did it together. And governments listened. The media, they were so respectful during that whole ordeal, and it still continues. But when you have the voices of the people, the ones that ordinarily don't get heard because that's wrong, their voices need to raise because it is the voices of many that can make a difference. And that's what we've seen with a lot of the families that we work with. The same thing with Miss Joy, rest in peace. Miss Joy with the fines, and then she ended up um, a death in custody. The fight with the family, the fight with the community against these institutions that very much were responsible in some sense in terms of some of the discriminatory practices, the laws, which very much affected the, the most marginalised and vulnerable of our community because you didn't have the money to pay the fine. So their voices, and I'll always be about this, is that they need to be heard and it has to be the voices of many because there's no way in the world that we can have our families being spoken for without them. We hear, I've heard that from conference to conference, from year to year to year. We can't talk about people without them. We don't want to be spoken for. And that's no different to the families that come into contact with the National Justice Project, with the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project, with Nullamaya, who is that organisation that I spoke about earlier part. That's how we create incredible change. The voices of many can do that. Mm. I'm sort of running out of time with you, but I have to ask you just one more question because of your really unique perspective. I think it's really important just to hear from you too about if there's anything you want to add about what might be particularly unique and challenging about our First Nations women with disability in the criminal justice system, if you just wanted to add any thoughts and reflections on on what's very unique about their position. Um, in the prison system, sometimes people can feel quite helpless Sometimes the women, they don't get the support. Sometimes the women, they don't get the assistance. So as a result, they feel helpless. Now, if you turn around and encompass that with the other issues, where there may be child protection issues, where there may be a suicide in that particular family, where there may be a death in custody in that particular family, where there may be about two, three or four people, which does happen with a lot of us mob, where we lose people, that is so much unaddressed trauma. And that, sadly, that basically, if, if that isn't disabled, that plays a huge part in terms of how our Aboriginal ladies do feel in the prison system and it can lead to deaths in custody, so to speak. But if you have a look at what happened in Western Australia about three weeks ago, two sisters, quite a vulnerable family, a beautiful family, actually, and that actually resulted in one sister killing the other sister. And that has caused so much hurt and trauma in our particular community and particularly in that family. These two ladies, it is known that they had mental health issues. It is known that both ladies suffered from schizophrenia. So in terms of the services, it's really important in many cases, life or death, that our services stay connected with our people in our community, understand 
that if they're not providing that service, if they're not providing that support, particularly around medication, lives can be lost. And sadly, that's what's being echoed from this particular family. They're saying that they were failed by services. And I'm not just talking about Aboriginal services. I'm talking about the mental health services. So in terms of women, one of the ladies has put them in a really awkward position, as it did with the mum and so forth, because now you've got the nieces of the one that's now passed away and they have to grow up with this. So in terms of the impacts, this is going to last their whole entire life. And we have to stop failing our people in that sense. And we need to go into our communities. We need to go into the homes. We need to understand homelessness because these issues walk hand in hand together. And like I was saying earlier, part there's 60% of our people who come into contact with the criminal justice system, they do fall on the poverty line across this nation. Sorry, 40%. But over in Western Australia, where one in 12 Aboriginal men are in prison today, it's having massive impacts on our people and it's only going to increase because the closing the gap strategies are not working. Reason being is because they're not taking any advice from the grassroots people who are impacted and affected by these every single day. And until that changes, nothing will change. Oh, Megan, thank you so much for those insights. It's such a privilege to hear you speak with all the deep knowledge you've got from the really important work that you've done. And I'm sure there'll be lots of questions for you when we get to the question part, but thank you so much. Thank you, Larissa. It's now my great privilege to introduce Damien Griffiths, who is a Warramai man and a leading advocate for the human rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability. Damien has been a central figure in the establishment of both the Aboriginal Disability Network New South Wales and First Peoples Disability Network. Damien represents FPDN in regional, national and international forums. And in 2014, he very deservedly won the Tony Fitzgerald Community Individual Memorial Award at the Australian Human Rights Awards. Damien has been doing groundbreaking work in this space and really is a leader on issues around First Nations disability. Um, So it's an absolute privilege to have you here tonight, Damien. Hi, Larissa. Great to be here. Thank you. And I thought I'd ask, similarly as I asked Megan, what drew you to working in this area and what sort of shaped your values that defines the work that you do? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time growing up around a profoundly hearing impaired grandmother. So I saw the isolation that Nan experienced uh, and the challenges she faced to be able to participate in community life, and I was—I've also had my own personal experiences with uh, mental health over the years, um, and work hard at managing that, like a lot of us do, really, in many ways. But I was also very fortunate to be mentored by Uncle Lester Bostock, a great Bundjalung warrior who was himself a man with physical disability and a pioneer of Aboriginal media, and did amazing things, but also an extraordinarily humble man. That was a great, it was a father figure to me in many ways. And also Annie Gail Rankin, who you'd remember well, an injury woman with physical disability also, who was a powerful leader. So I've been very blessed to be influenced by those great elders. Yeah, lovely to have a little reminder of the wonderful uh, Lester Bostock, who, you know, I think really left his mark, as did the other elders you mentioned. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, particularly with your work with First Peoples Disability Network, what some of the key areas of concern are for you, perhaps generally, but then, of course, you've done a lot of work in in the justice space as well, so so that too, just so people can get a really big snapshot of, of how complex the work is that you're actually doing? Yeah, sure. So the First People's Disability Network is a very unique organisation in that we are governed by First Nations people with disability themselves. So our board members are all First Nations people with a range of different disability types. So they have intellectual disability, acquired brain injury, physical disability, blind, deaf, for example, uh, and they own the the organisation. So that makes us very, very unique. Our priorities in terms of broad issues. That's obviously the National Disability Insurance Scheme and Megan touched on some of the issues there, but uh, generally speaking, the National Disability Insurance Scheme is failing our people with disability. But in terms of justice, there's a couple of key areas which we focus upon. Firstly, it's the extraordinary violation of human rights of some of our 
First Nations people with disability where they find themselves indefinitely detained in Australian prisons. And it's one of those things you almost need to stop and contemplate for a moment. At last count in the Northern Territory, there were more than 30 First Nations people with disability who were indefinitely detained. So that happens when a person is considered to be either a danger to themselves or a danger to others due to the nature of their disability, and they end up being effectively accommodated in prison. And many times, if the person had pled guilty, they would have been out of prison much quicker and may have cycled out of prison much more quickly. We have taken this matter to the United Nations on a number of occasions, but still we see no movement at all around this issue on the part of the Commonwealth, but also state and territory governments. It's an issue that occurs across the country, very prevalent in the Northern Territory, happens in WA, even happens in New South Wales. So we're aware of, just recently I heard of the situation of a young, well, not so young now, uh, Aboriginal woman with very significant disability who's been in Long Bay Jail for, for 20 years now, spending most of that time in solitary confinement. But you wouldn't know of these stories. They're not not often told about. We also would say, Larissa, there's just an increasing criminalisation of disability across the board, and particularly for those people that experience psychosocial disability, so mental health. So we often say at the First People's Disability Network that if you're having a psychotic episode, you better make sure it's on the third Tuesday of every fourth month when the mental health team's in town or you're in the back of a paddy wagon and you're off to prison. And you'll appear before a magistrate who maybe doesn't understand disability particularly well and then you end up in prison and perhaps indefinitely. But also another issue that we see a lot of, and and Megan would know this well and Daniel will, uh, I'm sure, knows this better than I do, but just the interactions between police and First Nations people with disability and people with disability generally, not just First Nations people, but definitely happens disproportionately. Just a couple of weeks ago in Taree, my colleagues had a community forum there and there was a number of examples used of young First Nations kids with disability as young as 11 or 12 being handcuffed by local police. We hear about those stories all the time. So in terms of social justice and extraordinary and egregious violation of human rights, it's hard to think of anything more serious than some of these things that go on, still often underreported in many ways. Mm. I wonder if following on from that, you might talk a bit about what sort of reforms you think are needed given the complexity of those issues that you're looking at. As you say, a lot of what you're highlighting also goes to some of the complex and systemic issues that Megan spoke to. From from your point of view, what are some of the key areas of reform that are needed? I totally agree with all the points that Megan was making before and I think her wisdom and knowledge of what's going on on the ground is so critical here. But I think clearly we need law reform. I'm not a lawyer, so I'll leave that to the lawyers to address uh, how that needs to be done. But law reform clearly needs to happen across all jurisdictions, no doubt about it. We also need greater investment in disability advocacy. So one of the things that we've identified is the potential for disability advocates to be co-located with Aboriginal legal services. Aboriginal legal services are really busy doing the lawyering and overwhelmed, as we all know. They have an incredible caseload. But it would be helpful for them, I think, if they had someone down the hallway who had specialisation in disability to get supports around a person's disability. But we also need to have a, a bigger discussion as a nation, I think, around understanding this intersectional issue of racism and ableism. So um, without going into too much around disability theory, but ableism talks about theories of deviancy and all those sort of things where people with disability are already considered to be, well, it's a Western approach to disability. So when the English invaded, they brought with them the Western approach to disability. And as we know, in Sydney, it was only a matter of a few years before orphanages were built and what were then called idiot houses, for example, and asylums. So that sort of Western approach of locking people away is what is still in existence today. Is it just slightly sophisticated is probably not the word, but a slightly more modern interpretation of it. But for the last 200-odd years, that, that has been the approach to disability in Australia, and that needs to change. And many of the community-based solutions that Megan talked about, and I know Daniel does 
in his work are the answers. We need government to get out of the way a bit, to be honest. Mm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about why a First Nations disability network is important and what sort of support it provides that a mainstream service can't. And I guess a big part of that is how important the cultural piece is in the work that you do. Yeah, that's a great question, Larissa. So the reason the First People's Disability Network is is such an important organisation, it sounds like such a simple and obvious thing to say, is the person with disability knows what it's like to have the disability. So I've been around disability all my life and working in the area since I left school, but I'm still learning myself. I learned the other day I saw deaf-blind communication for the first time, which is touch sign language, extraordinary thing to witness. But also the blind person knows what it's like to be blind. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but, you know, we could close our eyes for a couple of hours, but that doesn't really give us a sense of what it's like to negotiate the world when you're blind. So like Megan said, it's absolutely vital that First Nations people with disability have their voice heard and have a voice of their own. And that's a key part of why we're in existence. A lot of our people with disability aren't unaware of their rights and entitlements under things like the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, which is actually a good convention. It was actually created by people with disability. So it's really important that we educate and inform people so they can speak up for themselves. But we have to change, and just that cultural aspect, as you know, Larissa, and we've talked about before, in traditional language, we have no comparable word for disability. So that is something we need to be enormously proud of. So labelling is a Western concept, you know, and disability is the most labelled area you could imagine. Cerebral palsy, acquired brain injury, autism, intellectual disability, you know, blind, deaf, deaf, blind, you name it. There's all these sort of enormous labels and all the connotations that go with that. We know that we've always had disabilities an accepted part of a human experience because of the fairly recent discovery of a single male footprint at Lake Mungo. And that has been dated at 25,000 years ago. So that shows quite clearly, and the theory is that it was a one-legged man using a stick And the theory is he was actually participating in a hunt because they've been able to work out that he was moving at significant speed. So that shows that, you know, disability has always been part of the human experience and accepted that way. As we know, there's plenty of First Nations people who are blind who are traditional healers. There's more evidence now to show that there's been what we call today sign languages in existence for a very long time. So we're actually the thought leaders on, on inclusion. It's the system, as we all only as we all know, that continues to, well, more than let down, actually actively discriminate. So, mm. given the amount of time you've now been leading in this space, Damien, I thought it might be interesting to hear your reflections on what sorts of improvements you've seen over time. We're talking a lot about what are really entrenched problems. But I thought it might be helpful to maybe get a sense from you about where things have improved to see the sorts of things that you've seen make a difference. I mean, you have alluded to some of those things already, but I thought it'd be great to hear from you about your reflections on that. Yeah, I think the social movement is growing. I would share Megan's concerns around things like closing the gap that have been silent on disability. And that's very frustrating for us because things like closing the gap Mind you, there's a little bit of movement there. I, I do want to acknowledge that in the sense that disability is now recognised as an area that needs greater support, so that, that's positive. We have seen more of our people with disability getting into leadership roles and several of the staff that used to work at FPDN and now set up their own businesses and things like that, which is really positive. But I have to also throw in a word of caution there I worry, and this is the talk in the wider disability community too, that things are going backwards and we have to be very careful and be guarded against this. So the National Disability Insurance Scheme, we would argue, is increasingly operating from a medical model and we do run the risk of a return to things like segregated education. Uh, That's back on the agenda because if you take a market-driven approach to human services, one of the first things the market will do is try and reduce costs. So one of the ways you do that is you go back to congregate care systems and all those things that people have fought so hard to not have around anymore. So, But having said all that, 
the Disability Royal Commission is definitely uh, highlighting the very serious abuse and neglect that most Australians with disability experience, actually. And that's a positive in the sense that it's, it's shining a light on some very dark places. Most Australians with disability and certainly our people with disability, everyone has experienced abuse of some kind. And if you add women with disability to that, the rates, it's uncommon for a woman with disability not to have experienced abuse of some kind. So it's really important that we highlight these things. I note, though, still that the chair of the Royal Commission uh, has been getting really frustrated with a lack of any mainstream media reporting on it. ABC's doing, been doing an amazing job. SBS does a great job, NITV. But I, it just does not get reported in mainstream media. And that's because disability is just, it's a tough, it, it lacks focus. Just finally tonight, I wonder if you had any observations. Obviously, the year has really challenged a lot of people. We've been much more isolated because of the COVID restrictions. And I was wondering what your reflections were on the challenges it's posed in the spaces that you're working in. Yeah, look, it, it, it's been a very difficult year for everybody, but for our people with disability, the sense of isolation has been even greater. And we have spent a lot of time this year just getting our care packs to people, for example. Yeah, and Megan touched on this earlier, and I, I think that's another big conversation that the country needs to have seriously and genuinely, this issue of poverty. And as all of us know, and I know you report on regularly, Larissa, but this situation, particularly in regional remote Australia, where food security is a genuine and serious issue and lack of access to clean water and a reliable electrical supply and all those sort of things have a major impact if you have a disability. So if you're a person with disability on a ventilator and the power goes out, well, it can be life and death. So I think there's some key issues, I would say, racism, ableism and a serious proper understanding of poverty. I just don't get a sense, perhaps it's the mood I'm in today, Larissa, but I don't know too many bureaucrats that really have an insight into this world. Thank you, Damien. It's always a privilege to hear you talk and really respect the advocacy you've been doing consistently in the space. Thank you. So we've got quite a few questions from the audience and I'm just going to go to you first, Megan, because there are a couple that were specifically for you following up on a couple of things that you'd mentioned. And one was very quick, which was just if you could repeat the name of the program that you were talking about. And the other one was following up on your comment about the Closing the Gap initiatives are failing because the voices of people working in the front lines haven't been heard. And just wanting to hear a little bit more from you about that. So that's another mayor employment program. That's uh, the person that heads that up. His name is Mervineeds. He's been in the system for 18 years, like in prison. He's also come out and he's done some incredible work in partnership with our community. He doesn't treat anyone different. He loves all the brothers and sisters and basically if they need a hand with something, he's there front and centre for them. And that's about that radical transformation and, and taking someone to a positive place and it's always done with that love and respect, which is beautiful, and that's why there's 10 people buying their own homes today and 370 people that are employed across the nation. What we see is, you know, the system, it obviously criminalises mental health and also poverty, and as a result, we're seeing many people come into contact with the criminal justice system and also being incarcerated. But closing the gap strategies, it hasn't worked. It has failed viscerally. Now, it has come in with the best of intentions, but so too did Mr Neville back in the day in terms of the assimilation and so forth. Our voices aren't heard, and I'm talking about the people in the prisons that I go and see every single day, some of the people out in the homes where they're quite vulnerable and marginalised and they don't have any fuel money to get to appointments and so forth, and they've got another arc of issues. Some of the other families where they don't have a housing and so forth because they're homeless. And even things like getting birth certificates, I talk about the poverty in terms of the Henderson Poverty Line, basically that's $460 for the week. And many of our mob, when I talk about in terms of um, the poverty line, 60% has mentioned earlier parts, where there's one in 12 Aboriginal men are in prison today in Western Australia. They fall below the poverty line. Many people on Centrelink, they get $460, $500 a fortnight. So how can I afford certain things? And, and that's just our reality. That is the grim reality of the Australia that I work and I live in every single day. 
But the closing the gap campaign, there needs to be more investment. There needs to be mass investments in terms of incarceration, at least millions of dollars, millions of dollars on radical transformation. Education, education is a wonderful thing and we are all afforded the right to be educated. But if you're living in remote communities where there's 1,200 remote communities, 75,000 people, 40,000 that are young people, not every single one of those remote communities has a school. Not every single one of those remote communities has a place where you can go and play football or play netball or be entitled to the same basic rights as everyone else. So that is a systemic failure. And our people in our remote communities are failing as are having their own challenges. And that is not the right thing to do in terms of us living in Australia as a, as a whole. So I think when we talk about Aboriginal people, we need to understand, appreciate and respect the diversity as we all do, which is happening very much across this nation, but also understanding the whole thing in relation to disabilities as it pertains, as it applies to our mobs living in remote communities across this nation where they're, whereby there's 1,200 people. So closing their gap strategies and so forth, that comes down to political will. Political will has to be there. It's not in many cases. And also it's about our voices being heard, the families. And I'll just keep going on about it. I'll keep banging on about it because the more and more that our voices are heard in terms of our community, that's how we can effectuate positive change. It's a great message to keep repeating. Damien, I've got this wonderful question from Martha who's in Year 9, Class D, and she's asking how can I, as an able-bodied European-Australian, help the cause without seeming patronising or taking the voice from those who are directly affected? So a great question about how non-Indigenous, able-bodied people can get involved. I wonder, Damien, if you could share your thoughts with Martha. Martha, that's a really great question. And I think what we can do is, is learn from the way that we as First Nations people have always just accepted disability as part of the human experience. Humanity is a diverse thing and many of us come at the world in different ways and everyone has their own knowledge and their own contribution to make. And I think it's about valuing that and respecting that and you'll go a very long way to being a great friend and a great advocate for anyone that's um, perhaps uh, not getting the same opportunity as others. But I think the fact that you're participating today and, um, and it's about relationships, it's kind of that simple sometimes, I think. Great. Thank you. Damien, I might just check in with you and see if you had any last thoughts or reflections, particularly off the back of that, but anything else that's come to mind while we've been um, talking tonight. Yeah, there's so many things going off in my head, Larissa, and, but we need friends and colleagues and other people to help us out by participating tonight and then hopefully going on and sharing some of the stories that you've heard tonight and, and maybe taking the time to understand a bit more about the First People's Disability Network. Um, I think that would be really great. We, we need many voices to talk about these issues that are still really silent in many ways. We've still got a very long way to go to highlight some of the issues going on for First Nations people. Um, and Megan, I just wanted to check in with you to see if you had any last thoughts or comments to make. So just in terms of the mental health question, in terms of the psychosocial support, and it's a, it's a trifecta that needs to be had to save the lives and improve life circumstances. That is the assertive outreach going to families. It needs to be 24-7 and it needs to be that intense psychosocial support. That is a trifecta. Governments do not invest in that right now. So I work a couple of days with the National Justice Project, but also work with the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. We're working 70, 80, 90 hours a week. We go to families. We provide that psychosocial support where we can. It gets quite demanding because we're also not funded with that particular service. But mental health is a massive issue and in terms of the incarceration rate, in terms of community support, I think that we need to go back to whereas the 1980s and there was so much love support in terms of the social services into our community and we did it our way, so to speak. Right now, what we're seeing and a lot of these buzzwords, intergenerational trauma, that is very real. But what about intergenerational racism that still very much exists 
where legislation is applied out, where policies are enacted, where they have the closing the gap strategies and so forth, that intergenerational racism still very much exists and that's why the voices of our people matter. You've just heard from the National Justice Project's Megan Cracker. You've also been listening to CEO of the First People's Disability Network, Damien Griffiths. The online forum Fighting for the Rights of First Nations People Living with Disabilities in the Justice System was hosted by the National Justice Project. If any of the topics covered in the program have raised issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14, Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or Black Rainbow via their homepage blackrainbow.org.au. That's all we have time for this evening, but to take us out, we'll leave you with some new music from Emma Donovan. Here she is alongside the putbacks with the title track from her latest album, Crossover.
That's Emma Donovan and the Putbacks with their latest collaboration, Crossover. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we take stock of how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed our lives. What do we miss? What have we learnt? And how have we changed? The conversation was every freezer is full of fish. You know, (laughs) the idea that those lockdowns of communities meant that young people and older people were practising culture and the cultural transmission was quite extraordinary through hunting and camping and all those kind of things. Yep, being on country. Yeah, Yeah. and that the kids weren't being sent off to the boarding school and they were learning from home and created new ways of operating that meant the old ways and the new ways could kind of come together. And I love this idea that there are positives in all of this stuff, that we shouldn't think that we're going to go back to what we were before, where in fact this is an opportunity to accelerate the shifts and changes that need to occur. And I love this idea that during the bushfires, we built as a country a moral responsibility to the landscape going, actually, First Nations people have prototyped that already. Why don't we empower that? Let's empower that also for aged care, around education, around cultural understanding of identity, that First Nations cultures have prototyped so many things that this country could actually learn from. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.